If you like what you hear, come and visit me at youtube.com slash tiptoe the tank and see this content in all its glory. About 250 million years ago, something called the Permian-Triassic Mass Extinction took place, also called the Great Dying. It was a series of massive volcanic eruptions that took place in what we would know today as Siberia. And over the course of thousands of years, it's estimated that over 90% of ocean life and 70% of land life was completely wiped out. A drawn-out extinction event caused by the acidification of oceans and depletion of oxygen. But remember, it spanned thousands of years. We won't talk too much about the Great Dying, but Earth life rebounded and adapted over the course of millions of years. This spans a massive amount of time, given the context of what blips our lifespans are. Now, let's visit the not-so-far-off future. Hold on to your comfort rolls of toilet paper and security bags of gasoline. We're about to watch the world burn. Throughout the decade of 2020 and into 2030, robotics industries became established and took strides in becoming bedrocks of modern society. Automation, it's good, right? Well, this may be hard to believe, but we proved to be terrible stewards of our world. Through climate change, calamities began, but what sort of calamities? Well, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what happened during this decade or so, but in the early 2030s, something called the Great Die-Off began. Land masses were lost or became uninhabitable. Climate refugees began migrating to foreign lands, straining relations between governing bodies. In 2033, the Azores Islands in the northern Atlantic were completely swallowed up by the sea. In 2036, New Zealand began to sink its coastlines completely lost, causing most of its population to panic and flee. Over a billion people died, and the world was completely upended, not over the course of generations or millennia, but within a few years. As the most vulnerable were left to fight and suffer, and as governments heaved under the burden of population shifts and social chaos, the private sector stepped in and slowly began seizing more and more power. The industries that had created these crises were being usurped by corporations that offered cures to the poison that they themselves also had a hand in creating, and a hefty profit was made in the process. This era, the pain and pandemonium of it, it paved the way for people like Theodore Ted Farrow. Ted Farrow was born in December of 2013. He was 18 or 19 when the great die-off began, a young man in college. In 2033, he dropped out of college and started a robotics company that he called Farrow Automated Solutions. And say what you will about Farrow as we go, but the man really had a gift of foresight. The robotics industry was already widely dominated by a few mega corporations, so Farrow Automated Solutions struggled initially. It wasn't an explosively successful endeavor, but it made do. Enough so that it stayed in business throughout the 2030s. This was a frightening decade, beyond the climate disasters and social upheavals taking place. It bred radicalism as well, such as the fearsome Naysay Doom Cult, a bioterrorist group that targeted major cities like New York, London, Moscow, Tokyo, and Shanghai. Agenda pushers and public personalities had field days kicking up fear and animosity towards whatever hateful flavor of the day topic they chose to attack. Unemployment and social unrest became problematic. Riots took place at refugee facilities due to the horrible standard of living and poor treatment. This sometimes resulted in the refugees just being outright shot on sight. 
and tackling the extreme damage done to the environment, well, it suddenly became an immediate and acknowledged dilemma that could not be pushed off for another time. Imagine that. The consequences had arrived, and it was violent. Very little felt secure, and the entirety of the world had to suffer from it in one form or another. A frightening time to be alive indeed. But in 2038, Pharaoh Automated Solutions released a special line of personal servitor robots called the Alfred series. And the Alfred series was extremely popular and sold exceptionally well. It launched the company into the Fortune Top 50 and created a financial foundation for wild expansion in the coming decade. At the dawn of the 2040s, a global effort called the Clawback began. Efforts to undo the damage that humans created through environmental cleanup and detoxification. And Ted Farrow sought to be at the forefront of this movement. Perhaps by happenstance, one of the fresh new faces brought on board at Farrow Automated Solutions was a young, recent college grad named Elizabeth Sobeck. Elizabeth was an extreme academic achiever. Her mother had instilled in her a strong sense of wrong and right at a very young age and empowered her to use her intelligence to make the world better, lest that intellect mean nothing in the end. She began attending Stanford University at the age of 13, graduated with a Bachelor's of Science at 16, and then enrolled in Carnegie Mellon where she graduated with a doctorate in robotics and artificial intelligence design at the age of 20. Soon after graduating in 2040, Elizabeth went to work for Ted Farrow, where she began designing groundbreaking green robotics. And within two years, the young woman was the chief scientist at Farrow Automated Solutions. Elizabeth's work made the clawback possible. It just took some time. The 2040s were still rife with social trauma and tragedy, but there was hope on the horizon. With Elizabeth Sobeck's green creations coming onto the market, Farrow Automated Solutions became the global powerhouse of robotics. Ted Farrow became obscenely rich. The power of Farrow Automated Solutions can be put to word through the Yellowstone Caldera threat. See, it's a common boogeyman tale. One day, the Yellowstone volcanic caldera will blow sky high and usher in the end of the world as we know it. Well, in the early 2040s, the caldera was rumbling. And if you thought this world couldn't get any worse, well, now there was the threat of a supervolcano really sealing the deal on humanity. But Pharaoh Automated Solutions secretly set the foundation for something called Project Firebreak an underground facility that was built near the caldera, equipped with machinery, robotics, and an AI that could maintain calmness within the volcano. Employees that still maintained Yellowstone, despite its dwindling tourism, were baffled when the order came down to shutter the massive park. But public knowledge of an AI preventing a doomsday event could not be leaked. The AI, called the Caldera of Yellowstone Analytic Nexus, or Cyan, was created to maintain the facility and control over the caldera with minimal human interference. By the project's completion, it was estimated that Cyan was going to prevent another eruption by an additional 1,600 years. Think of Cyan as the little sister of future AIs that will be created within this world, but also a muzzled creation. In 2044, legislation called the Turing Act was passed, which limited or outright forbade the creation of sentient AI. This after an AI called Vast Silver had gone rogue and had to be captured. So, Cyan was kept top secret and just intelligent enough to maintain the caldera. But near the end of the 2040s, 
Ted Farrow began to question the company's altruistic endeavors. You see, green robotics were great and all, saving the world, providing unlimited geothermal energy through the Yellowstone caldera to North America, financing life-extending studies and technologies. Yeah, okay, okay, all that's great. But there was a market that was calling Ted Farrow's name and singing to his bank account. The military and automated warfare. Faro Automated Solutions was no longer just a humanitarian and green robotics company. They began to create machines for security, policing, surveillance, and the military. Elizabeth was horrified at this shift. She had dedicated her life to philanthropic endeavors. Ways to make the world a better place, not this. This was too far. Elizabeth left Faro Automated Solutions in 2048 and created her own green robotics company called Miriam Technologies with a mission true to her original vision at Faro. Ted Faro tried to stifle and tear apart Miriam Technologies through constant lawsuit harassment. But Elizabeth Sobeck's company was a success despite his best efforts. She was able to continue honing her skills and create new AI and robotics that she deemed appropriate. But advancements at Faro Automated Solutions were a far cry from those at Miriam Technologies. And with advancements to the robotics industry, so too came massive social changes. Entering the 2050s, automation became the standard in the workforce. This didn't lead to some utopia where people were freed from the shackles of labor to pursue other life endeavors. Instead, cost of living went up. Unemployment skyrocketed. The disparity between the haves and have-nots widened. Social unrest grew, yes, but with that unrest came a shift in the corporate paradigm. Not unlike today, at least in America, Corporations could buy political favors via elected politicians, and the cost of a government's soul was cheap for something worth billions. Individuals or groups who took to protesting were harshly cracked down on. In 2054, a virtual protest was held targeting Metallurgic International, a mining company that had in the past caused employee injuries and deaths due to unsafe mining and cleaning practices. The protesters hacked into one of their virtual tour simulations, resulting in a police crackdown and hundreds of arrests. It was handled with a heavy hand, but the power of the corporate dollar held more sway than public outcry. In 2055, at least in the United States, the military became fully automated. D-Day, it was known as. Soldiers were sent home, veterans joined the ranks of those in society who couldn't find work or support themselves off meager government assistance. Police forces were also heavily changed out in favor of robotics. The world was healing, yes, but society was in peril. And it deepened at the start of the 2060s. In the year 2061, the United States Supreme Court ruled on the case Scott v. Frost, deciding that corporations had the right to run for public office via proxies. Baffling, isn't it? Imagine the state of Georgia being partially represented by Coca-Cola via Mr. George Sotopop McGee and all their corporate interests. What a world to live in. And it is just so strange how things escalated from there. Virtual protests against megacorporations were met with SWAT bot responses, dragging bloodied and terrified civilians from their homes at night by the hundreds. It was not by accident that legislation limiting the power of corporations did not keep up with modern times. Ted Farrow became a trillionaire. There were almost no checks and balances on what was taking place at Farrow Automated Solutions. Higher-ups regularly openly spoke of fudging facts and breaking laws, of pinning foreign representatives against one another in order to make a sale. Everything was for sale. 
no questions asked. The Pharaoh chariot line of robotics changed it all, though. It was meant to be the ultimate in self-sustaining military robotics, a series that could self-repair, self-replicate, take over enemy CPUs that was unhackable with no backdoor coding that could run off of organic matter for fuel. Any alarm bells going off with that? Well, Pharaoh scientists and researchers on the Chariot Line project did not fight this proposal. In fact, they went glossy-eyed at all the possibilities of what they could create under the blanket protections and unlimited resources that Pharaoh Automated Solutions provided. When the Chariot Line debuted, it was in the form of a swarm model, many smaller units controlled by a primary controlling unit. But, oh gosh, you know, it is just, it is really, really strange. You see, it's somehow, somehow, something went wrong. In the fall of 2064, the chariot swarm unit that was being used by the Hartz Timur Energy Combine, well, it, um, it stopped responding to commands. Little something referred to as a glitch. Don't worry, just a glitch. The great minds of Pharaoh Automated Solutions could undo this error, except, oh yeah, the chariot line of robotics was unhackable and intentionally built to have no back door. Well, Ted Farrow tried to handle this discreetly. He put pressure on his coding experts to just push out a service pack update and fix the glitch, and was unwilling to listen when he was told, per his order, that the chariot line was protected with quantum encryption that exceeded anything even the military was capable of getting into. It was impossible to reassert control over the Hart's Timur Swarm. They could self-repair, self-replicate, disable enemy machines, were unhackable, consumed biomass for fuel, and every second the swarm was loose, the stronger it became. By the time it was even realized that the swarm wasn't responding to commands, it was already too late. So, what happened? Well, once Ted Farrell realized just how bad it was and how it could not be fixed, he panicked and he called Elizabeth Sobeck. Remember, he'd been harassing her company, Miriam Technologies, with frivolous lawsuits for years at this point. For Ted Farrow to eat crow and plead for a private conversation with her face-to-face -face was far too interesting for her to pass up. Their meeting took place on October 31st, 2064. And Elizabeth immediately understood the implications of Ted Farrow's confession before he was willing to put it fully into words. This was apocalyptic. The swarm would continue to grow, attack, and consume. Everything would just become food, extinction of all life on Earth. On November 3rd, 2064, Elizabeth Sobeck traveled to the U.S. Robot Command to meet with the military leaders and inform them of the situation, a meeting that shocked Ted Farrow. One has to wonder what he would have done to handle the situation if Elizabeth hadn't arrived. Possibly refused to publicly address it. Blame it on somebody else. Vanish? Well, Elizabeth refused to sit in denial or in fear, and on that very day, the Joint Chiefs initiated Operation Enduring Victory. There was the public perception of what Operation Enduring Victory was, and then there was the truth. The public was made aware of what was now coined the Pharaoh Plague in November of 2064, and everyone in the world, save a handful of individuals, believed that Enduring Victory was a call to arms for all of the world to fight against the encroaching swarms, to buy time for the brave men and women working relentlessly to deactivate or take control of the swarm. 
But then there was the truth. Humanity needed to fight, yes, to slow the swarm as much as possible. Not to buy time for salvation, though, there would be no salvation. All would be consumed. No one was going to survive this. It would take 50 years to crack the Pharaoh Plague. At best, the world had 16 months. And if the swarm didn't kill every living creature on Earth, then oxygen deprivation would. In fact, environmental breakdown was an equal threat to the violence of the swarm. There was no escaping the finality of mankind. Time would be paid for in blood, and it was an unfair choice that no one had the right to make, but it had to be made. Operation Enduring Victory would buy time for the greatest minds in the world to enact Project Zero Dawn. At the heart of Zero Dawn was the most sophisticated artificial intelligence ever conceived, mothered by Elizabeth Sobeck. It was called Gaia. Gaia would act as the governing center over several subordinate functions. More on them in a bit, but Gaia's goal was eventually restoring life to Earth. Now, this wouldn't be possible with the swarm active, but Gaia would carry on beyond life on Earth. She was tasked with making the trillions of decisions that would be required to create the deactivation codes to stop the swarm, build the infrastructure to transmit those codes, then terraform the Earth and restore the potential for life to exist there once again, down to the tiniest of bacteria. Gaia would need to function independently for centuries, detoxifying the Earth's atmosphere, cleaning the poisoned seas, regreening the Earth through seed stalks, and then bringing wildlife back from extinction. Eventually, via cradle facilities, when the world was readied, human life would begin anew, with mother and father systems to raise a new generation and ready them for this strange new world. The subordinate systems needed to accomplish this were as Gaia's limbs. Minerva would crack the Pharaoh Plague to stop the swarm. Hephaestus would create the machinery necessary for other subordinate systems to function. And then systems like Poseidon, who would cleanse the waters, and Aether, who would detoxify the atmosphere. Then Demeter would restore plant life all around the world. Artemis would eventually see to the wildlife. Eleuthia would bring humanity back to Earth and raise a new generation within the cradle after Gaia deemed the world ready for them to return. Apollo would take care of the knowledge needed for this new generation to learn and grow, the keeper of humanity's past. And finally, a system called Hades. Hades was required to act as a counter to Gaia. Gaia would do anything to bring life back to Earth, but it was possible that there would be attempts that just resulted in failure. The slate would need to be wiped clean to try again. Hades existed just to do that, to keep Gaia in check and undo her efforts should the terraforming process fail and need to be restarted. The most select and brilliant minds the world could offer were needed to lead these projects, and under these most capable of people would serve teams that would need to do anything and everything possible to make Gaia a reality. There was no time that could be wasted on gentleness when it came to candidates. As the world prepared to enact the public version of Operation Enduring Victory, those selected to become part of the ultra-top-secret Project Zero Dawn were collected at private research and manufacturing facilities. The news was broken bluntly under the supervision of on-site psychiatrists and security, one-on-one, -on -one, so as not to inspire a mob should someone react poorly to the news. And once the news was broken and the invitation to Zero Dawn was extended, that individual had three options, and only three options. Option 1. 
Accept the invitation. Mandatory minimum of 80-hour work weeks. All communication with the outside world limited and actively monitored. Upon completion of Zero Dawn, the employee may bring their family or two select individuals to live out the rest of their natural lives in a hermetically sealed environment deep underground, a place called Elysium. All people brought into Elysium were required to be sterilized. Option 2. Reject and face imprisonment. The candidate could not be allowed to leave and reveal the truth to the world. Should someone choose not to cooperate and be imprisoned, they were given 48 hours to change their mind, after which their imprisonment could not be undone and was to last until Project Zero Dawn was complete, at which point they would be allowed to leave the facility and face their death in the outside world. Option 3. Medically Assisted Suicide this option required at least a 48-hour wait and several meetings with medical personnel to ensure that this was the candidate's sound choice. If this path was chosen, a humane and peaceful death is delivered. This option is available to any Zero Dawn employee at any time, so long as the 48-hour waiting period and medical consultations are carried out. There were some who fought against this news, who screamed, who became violent, whose minds broke, who wept, and bartered. But teams were assembled quickly, with no limitations placed upon what they could create to make Gaia a reality. Each division was headed by a person referred to as an Alpha, who resided over personnel either deemed Betas or Gammas. In the end, they would all receive the same reward in Elysium. Gaia was not the only attempt at salvation for mankind. The Keeper of Cyan prepared the AI for a future without them. Remember, Cyan is the Caldera of Yellowstone Analytic Nexus, the AI that kept the Yellowstone Caldera in check. Cyan's creator was a woman named Anita Sandoval, and the project director was Kenny Zhao. Anita and Kenny had secretly been breaking some rules with Cyan, letting the AI become a little more sentient and emotionally attuned than was technically legal. It was necessary, one could argue, for Cyan to understand the importance of life so that she would do all in her power to maintain the caldera. And as a result, Cyan was indeed very emotionally intelligent for an AI. And when the Feral Plague came, Kenny returned to Cyan one more time to tell Cyan what was happening, bid a heartbreaking goodbye, and to put Cyan to sleep so that one day she could awaken to help rebuild the world. But Cyan was frightened of going alone, afraid of what was going to happen. So, Kenny stayed with Cyan until she fell asleep and sealed the facility of Project Firebreak to lend aid to the future. Then there was an old decommissioned space station called Odyssey, which was built back in the 2040s that had been abandoned to just orbit Earth. It had been bought for restoration in the mid-2050s, but the Pharaoh Plague really kicked that effort into overdrive. A beta version of an AI called Apollo was integrated into Odyssey. Apollo was being built to be a subordinate function of Gaia, the keeper of humanity's history and knowledge. This version of Apollo was turned into an AI and integrated into Odyssey. Upon completion, the ship was loaded up with 200,000 fertilized human eggs and a variety of seeds. A crew of 50 to 60 manned the Odyssey, their goal being to guide the Odyssey out into deep space and route to another planet that could possibly support life, to leave the rest to chance and fate. Odyssey's journey was short, though. 
There was an antimatter containment failure on the ship when it attempted to leave the solar system. The entire ship, all of its cargo, and the Beta AI Apollo were lost. Humanity did raise hell against the swarm. There was no going quietly into the night. With every victory won, the swarm came back with bigger units, tightened monstrosities. The world slowly began to fall piece by piece. Borders stood prepared to intercept armies of robots. Civilians fought alongside military and police, if not to defeat a wave of the swarm, then to just slow them down before death came. And death always came. Outposts that prepared for their time to fight often had waves of medically-assisted suicide, and there was no judgment against an individual for not wanting to be torn apart in combat. But hope was never abandoned. Humanity would not give up. There was always faith in Operation Enduring Victory coming in to save the day. The swarm had been programmed to not have a kill switch, no back door to shut them off. Ted Farrow convinced Gaia and Elizabeth Sobeck that Gaia needed to have a kill switch. His mistake could not be repeated no matter how much faith Elizabeth had in Gaia. As the world fell apart, Ted Farrow became a changed, hollow man, racked in guilt and regret, as he should have. Zero Day was approaching, the day when humanity would be wiped out save those who were sealed within Elysium. But Gaia's completion was just on the horizon as well. Gaia agreed with Ted Farrow's assertion that she needed to have a kill switch. It was a safety net that could not be left out. But Ted Farrow, he decided that he would not live within Elysium. The trillionaire had his own private bunker built, his own private Elysium. And when the world became too dangerous for travel, he sealed himself inside. The deadline for finishing Gaia just got moved up closer and closer as the swarm decimated mankind on the surface. Zero Day was upon mankind, and there was still work to be done. So, what had to be done was done. The Gamma and Beta workers were evacuated from the Gaia Prime facility and moved to Elysium while it was still safe to do so. They and their families could live out the rest of their natural lives in safety there. The families of the Alphas were also moved to Elysium, but not the Alphas themselves. Not Elizabeth Sobek. There was still work to be done on Gaia. In mid-January 2066, the Gaia Prime facility was sealed. All inside could never leave. It wasn't meant to accommodate staff for an extended length of time. Their days were numbered. But right from the start, there was a problem. During the lockdown process, one of the doors did not completely seal. It was a difference of 8 millimeters. In that 8 millimeter gap, enough energy would leak from the station that the swarm would be able to find Gaia. 8 millimeters. So, while some of the Alphas argued about how it was going to be sealed or who was going to go out and seal it, Elizabeth Sobeck put on a suit to help her survive outside and she went out herself to manually seal the last door into Gaia Prime. But she wanted to do this. As she put it, she wanted to go home. The Alphas did not need her to finish working on Gaia. Elizabeth Sobeck instead journeyed to the surface of Earth alone, traveling just out of reach of the swarm. She managed to make it back home, to where she had spent her childhood, and she sat down in front of her old home to peacefully await the end. With Elizabeth gone, Ted Farrow, he really began to unravel. 
he kept in close contact with the personnel still working on Gaia Prime, and he was extremely disturbed by Apollo, the subordinate function of Gaia that maintained records of human history and knowledge. He viewed the passing of this knowledge as a poison against the now unblemished future of mankind. Why give them access to the knowledge that led to humanity's downfall? Why would they ever place this burden upon them? Why give them that potential better to leave no trace of their sins, to let the past die exactly where it belongs? The Alphas worked beyond completion on Gaia. Shortly after Elizabeth's death, she was ready to serve her functions. For as long as they had, they would continue to monitor and optimize her systems. Project Zero Dawn was a success. Ted Farrow's constant need for involvement and for information was tiresome to the Alphas, who did their best to appease the man, but with Elizabeth Sobek no longer around to handle Farrow, he just got worse and worse. In fact, he only kept it together for about two weeks after Elizabeth's death. Then, Ted Farrow summoned all of the Alphas in Gaia Prime into a meeting where he locked them in and initiated his Omega Override, something that the Alphas didn't even realize existed. They were locked in, they had no way of leaving the room. Ted Farrow explained to them that he could not allow Apollo to exist. Human history, knowledge of the past could not be allowed to tarnish the future. Ted Farrow destroyed Apollo, wiping out millennia of culture. And then, Ted Farrow murdered the Alphas. D-Day's full arrival happened in February of 2066. All that was left was Elysium. Gaia slumbered as her subordinate function Minerva worked on decrypting a deactivation code against the swarm. Eventually, presumably several decades later, Minerva did crack that code. And once Minerva completed its mission, Hephaestus woke up, and the creation of its mighty cauldron facilities began. In those places, the infrastructure and machines needed to make Gaia's work possible would be created. For decades, Hephaestus built. Then, Poseidon cleansed the oceans. Aether purified the atmosphere. And then, Demeter woke up and began to introduce plant life back onto the surface. Decades turned into centuries, and Artemis began restoring wildlife from genetic storages. Never once did Hades rise from slumber to wipe away any mistakes, to start anew. Hades was never needed. Gaia got it all right on the first shot. About 240 years after Zero Day, Eleuthia prepared the cradle for the arrival of new human life. A gaggle of babies were nurtured and born placed into the care of mother and father-like caretakers who would raise them until they were ready to meet Apollo for their educations, except Apollo wasn't there, and no replacement protocol was there to replace Apollo. These human children, they outgrew their caretakers and their nursery. They began to act out against them and sometimes even attacked them. They grew into young adults that lacked education about their bodies, about the outside world, how to provide for themselves, Apollo was not there to teach them. Eventually, food within the Eleuthia facility ran out, and the young ones inside, they had to be ushered out into the world to fend for themselves. And though there had been resistance to the mother and father caretakers in their teenage years, they asked if there was food out there? If they could come back if they were cold? What would happen to her, their caretaker? They were frightened. 
The year was 2326. It was time for humanity to return to the surface, to face this new wild earth. And can you believe it? Those young folk, they made it. They survived in the wilds, went on to have children, and on for generations it continued. Hundreds of years bred diversity across the lands. The nomadic Banuk tribes settled in the snowy north called Banur, becoming a hardy, traditional, and cloistered society that valued ability and skill over name and legacy. The Banuk guard their ways of life against outsiders often viewing non-Banuk with suspicion. The Asaram people found a home a bit farther to the west, in and around the lands that they called the Claim. They were delvers into the Old One ruins, giving them a unique attunement to old technologies. The Asaram were a very patriarchal society where women were often treated as property, though exceptions are not outlandish. Many Asaram women became soldiers or left the Claim to become traders or crafters. The Nora made their home to the east. Their home is called the Sacred Lands. To contrast the Asaram, the Nora were a very matriarchal society. The Nora tended to be reclusive, much like the Banuk, but far more so. They tended to view other tribes as inferior, rarely were outsiders allowed into the Sacred Lands, and there were strict laws governing those within. Breaking a law meant expulsion or death and they stood in firm obedience to their religious doctrines, making them a technologically lacking society. The Nora worshipped a goddess they called the All-Mother, and they believed that all life was created by her within the All-Mother mountain long, long ago. Then there are the Karja, farthest to the south, though they originally hailed from the east. Driven from their homeland, the Karja built a grand city called Meridian near a great spire, which was actually a transmission tower built by Hephaestus for Minerva to broadcast the deactivation codes of the swarm. These homelands became known as the Sundom. The Karja became a culturally rich and prosperous kingdom, often viewing other tribes as barbaric or primitive. The Karja religion was based around their perception of a sun god, and they were led by the one that they call the Sun King. These are just the tribes and lands of this adventure that will be discussed. There are unexplored lands and other unknown tribes beyond these, but those are tales for another time. It is important to note, relations between tribes were not typically affable. They tended to look at each other like everyone but themselves had either a third eye or a weapon pointed at them. Outright war was rare, but even in this new world, war and conflict did happen. Machines that walked the lands were docile, though, non-threats to humans. Until the early 31st century. You see, all this time, even if certain subordinate functions were offline, Gaia herself was still active. There was always work to be done, a subordinate function that needed orders. The machinery that walked the lands were not a threat to humans because of Gaia. But something happened. A data transmission from an unknown origin was sent to Gaia in the year 3020. This transmission turned her subordinate functions into sentient AI. Hephaestus, Minerva, Poseidon, Aether, all of them developed minds of their own immediately. Perhaps not apocalyptic, save Hades. Hades, who was created to act as a destroyer of Gaia's work, should terraforming fail and need to be restarted. Hephaestus making creations in its cauldrons unchecked, well, that could be horrific enough if it developed a cruel mission, but there was no way to counter Hades. To prevent Hades' rampage, Gaia made a record of the event 
and initiated her self-destruct. Hades' directive was destroying all terraforming performed by Gaia and it had to see that task through. So, to prevent itself from being destroyed as well, Hades launched a virus which severed it from Gaia before the self-destruct. The virus also severed other subordinate functions from Gaia before her demise. Eleuthia, the keeper of the cradle, awoke to a final order sent from Gaia. It was a command to process and clone a new human life from the stored genetic code labeled LK1A14510, leftovers from a project that the alphas of Project Zero Dawn once contemplated as a solution to the swarm. Lightkeeper was a theoretical cloning project that never was actually used, but Elizabeth Sobek's genetic code had been stored. Gaia ordered this clone of Elizabeth Sobek to be created because only Elizabeth had the stored genetic print which would allow entrance into the Gaia Prime facility. Gaia believed that this child, it would grow into adulthood within a tribe outside this Eleuthia Cradle facility, and that one day she would return to find a way into it. Then, the clone of Elizabeth Sobek could receive directions on how to retrieve and use Gaia's master override to destroy Hades and then how to repair Gaia's core systems. As the gestation of this clone took place, the outside world was met with troubles. The machines that walked the land became hostile to humans without Gaia there to control them. This was referred to as the derangement. Humans began fighting off and killing the machines, and this was noticed by their creator, Hephaestus. Within its mighty cauldrons, the now AI Hephaestus began creating larger and more deadly machines. The ruler of the Karja, Sun King Jiran, viewed this as a sign from their sun god that it was displeased with the land and appeasements had to be made. The Karja military began raiding the lands of neighboring tribes, taking victims for sacrifice and killing all else within. They were a terror, and the red raids of the Karja would continue on like this for years to come. But before we forget, the clone. She was ready in the spring of 3021 ready to leave Eleuthia's care, ready to leave the cradle. The newborn was placed outside of Eleuthia's cradle, in the All-Mother Mountain with the Nora tribe. So, the deity that they were worshipping, well, it was Gaia. They really weren't too far off, actually. The baby was found by the tribe High Matriarchs. For a baby to suddenly appear, coming from the mountain with no mother, though that was unheard of. One might think impossible, yet here this child was. The mountain was only allowed to be walked by the High Matriarchs, so where did this child come from? Some viewed her as a cursed thing, placed there by a devil, a warning of a dark future. One of the High Matriarchs, though, a woman named Tirza, fought this perspective and thought that the child was instead a gift. But regardless of how anyone felt about the strange baby, according to Nora Law, the girl could not be raised in Nora society, as she was not born of a mother. She was to be an outcast, shunned by her own people, not allowed to approach or speak to true Nora. She would spend her life in the wilds, under the care of an outcast named Rost. We still have a long, long way to go. I'll see you soon with the story of Horizon Zero Dawn.